Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, May 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state faces more legal scrutiny over policies related to the capital city. This time over a delay in releasing federal funds for Jackson's water system. Then part two of our conversation with House Speaker Philip Gunn. We look at how recent legislation has impacted relationships in the chamber. Plus, public universities continue a trend of raising tuition rates. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi has received millions of dollars in federal funds over the last few years to address reoccurring problems for Jackson's water system. But a complaint filed by the Southern Poverty Law Center suggests the state has intentionally delayed distributing those funds and in some cases set up unnecessary barriers. Crystal McElrath is lead counsel for the SPLC on the complaint. She tells our Mike McEwen why this could constitute a civil rights violation. And so we recognize that there was still a large amount of money that had been dispersed to the state of Mississippi even before the pot of money that the NAACP noticed. Um, might be at issue with the EPA. So while the NAACP has looked at uh, this particular revenue stream going through the EPA, we were saying, listen, there's still hundreds of millions of dollars that the federal government sent to Mississippi a year before the water crisis. And had it been distributed, maybe we could have begun to make some work. And by the way, it still has not been dispersed to Jackson. So here we have a water crisis where the city of Jackson still doesn't have safe drinking water. It's out of headlines. Donations are slowing down, um, but the need is still great. And Mississippi is still uh, really holding Jackson hostage in work. And so could you talk a little about why the SPLC felt this was specifically a violation of the Civil Rights Act? And I believe in the complaint, it was specifically Section 6. Title 6 of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination in the use of federal funds. And the influx of federal money that was coming into the state of Mississippi in 2020, 2021, and 2022, but not making its way to Jackson, just screened Title VI discrimination. It's inequitable distribution of federal funds. And so for the state of Mississippi, to uh, receive as much money as it did Um, and uh, for Jackson to have seen none of it just really made us scratch our heads and uh, so we just started digging and really following the money the legislative record and um, what bills have been passed I'll even point out which bills had not been passed because in the 2022 legislative session there was a bill that would have sent 42 million dollars to Jackson without any of these constraints and it just died without a vote so we just started tracking the money and how how it was being appropriated to determine if it really was equitable. Um, and I mean, again, at, at first glance, just the fact that Jackson had received nothing, almost nothing of the hundreds of millions, almost a billion dollars that, um, um, excuse me, a hundred, hundred, yeah, yeah, hundreds of millions. Um, 
nearly a billion that have come into the state of Mississippi um, over 2020, 2021, and 2022, we felt like we needed to really dig in there. And if we could go back a little bit to the specific legislation in the state of Mississippi, and especially relating to how municipalities are required to access the funding through the Department of Environmental Quality. And your expertise, if you could answer this, how precedented is that system, I suppose, in the rest of the country? Obviously, Mississippi does not stand alone in having water issues. So how does that look on the national landscape? Yeah, and I think that's a really fair question. Every state has the discretion to set up their system for distributing these funds however it wants to. And other states use matching programs. That's not something we're hiding or ignoring. Jackson has a need that's not comparable or not many accurate comparators, right? What we wanted to really point out here was that all of this is discretionary. Um, The federal government does not require a matching program. There are other states that use it, but have left room for really exigent circumstances. So where there was a really compelling and obvious reason. Um, other states have used language like um, a long-standing or well-documented need, right? Other states have taken into consideration that there might be straits that are so dire that it's not right to require municipalities to match, um, match the money. And Mississippi just didn't do that. And what I think is particularly telling there is that the city of Jackson had been asking for help for so long before the state of Mississippi received this money. Not just asking for help, but in detail stating, we have this big of a need and we can't meet that need on our own. I mean, efforts to pass sales taxes or request just so much documentation, so many requests for help for years before Mississippi got um, this influx of federal COVID relief and, and various types of funds in the last three years. So if other states who don't have a Jackson water crisis can recognize the need to allow for a waiver of matching programs, um, why not Mississippi? And then when you layer on the fact that this legislation actually adds additional heightened uh, requirements for Jackson and only Jackson, then you start to feel like maybe this isn't a coincidence. Maybe this isn't an oversight. Maybe there is some intentionality. Um, and you know that's something that we can't prove at this level. We are drafting a complaint asking the the Treasury to investigate further, to use its power to do a deeper investigation. But from what we've seen, it just feels like Mississippi was not particularly interested in giving Jackson the money it needed. And, you know, there's the quote you saw in our complaint where one of the Mississippi legislators, um, he's referencing another bill, but he specifically alludes back to the other money that's come in and simply says, we are not turning over hundreds of millions of dollars to this city. I mean, what what do you do with that? 
Crystal McElrath, an attorney, is the lead counsel for Southern Poverty Law Center on the complaint. The Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality was named in it. They declined to comment on the issue. Coming up, part two of our conversation with Philip Gunn, the House Speaker, and we look at how recent legislation has impacted relationships in the chamber. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. During House Speaker Philip Gunn's final term, leading the chamber. Relationships between black and white members went through significant highs and lows. In 2020, Gunn helped shepherd the changing of the state flag, something many black members say should have been done long ago. The moment was celebrated across both racial and party lines. But recent legislation designed to strip Jackson of some of its sovereignty has dampened the camaraderie. Opponents of these measures, namely HB 1020, say it is a step backwards, reminiscent of Jim Crow. In part two of his conversation with our Kobe Vance, Gunn reflects on these moments and lays out how the legislature got a pivotal case before the Supreme Court. The flag change helped put a new perspective on each other within the chamber. I think prior to that, there was always maybe some suspicion um, from maybe certain racial overtones that may have existed with between the two camps. And with that vote right there, we had 48 Republicans who voted their conviction and voted to to make a change on that flag. That flag does not change without the Republicans casting the vote. We are uh, a supermajority Republican both in the House and the Senate. So, and at that time, as you recall, it took a two-thirds vote to to get the bill before the floor. And so, I think many of those who may have previously thought that there were certain racial motivations saw those melt away because we had Republicans who voted to do what they thought was right, not necessarily what was political, and it was a hard vote for many of them. And I think our colleagues on the, on the Democratic side saw that and realized that maybe there's, there's not the racial overtone that we think exists here. And that, I believe, helped smooth the waters a lot within my own chamber we can still disagree on the policy. We can still disagree on the solution. But it's not driven by um, a, a racial motivation. And I think that what that vote showed on both ends of the building, for that matter. What were your thoughts seeing some of those arguments come back this year, though, whenever we saw debates over House Bill 1020 focusing on Jackson? I think it's a red herring. I don't think there's any racial overtone there at all. I think that is uh, 1020 was nothing more than an attempt to help our capital city. The capital city is the state capital for everybody. 
not just those who live in Jackson. And there are problems that exist, and if we don't address them, we're like an ostrich who sticks his head in the sand. Isn't it an ostrich who sticks his head in the sand? Make sure I got my animals right. So the ostrich sticks his head in the sand. The garbage is not being picked up in Jackson. The crime is statistically some of the worst in the country. The water system is broken. None of those things are black or white or racial. Water is water. Garbage is garbage. It's got to be picked up. And to, to try to turn that into a racial issue is completely ignoring the problem. The legislature, it's very difficult to get legislators who don't live in Jackson to, to care about Jackson. And the only argument that we have is to tell them this is your capital city and we need to be proud of it. What we fully should have expected is that the leaders of Jackson should have come over here and said, we would love to have your help. Please come and help us address these problems. Instead, what we got was, was fighting and accusations of, of racial overtones, and it's just completely unfounded. Um, the, the, the sponsor of 1020 is Trey Lamar. He is the one who crafted that bill. Trey Lamar is the one who started the flag change. The week before the vote, he made a post on social media that he had come to the conviction that it is now time to change the flag. And that is what started the dominoes to fall. That was on a Thursday night. And over the next week, one Republican after another got on board with the flag change. So to sit there and accuse Trey Lamar of being having some sort of racial motivation is completely false. It is a red herring, and it is, it, it's a narrative that is just flat wrong. He's the one that, that started, so to speak, the, the flag change issue. So nothing about that bill is racial. It is simply an attempt to address crime. If you're going to address crime in the capital city, you've got to catch the bad guys. You've got to give the police department the tools they need to go catch the bad guys. You've got to have stiff prosecutions. You've got to have a DA or a prosecutor of some sort that's going to go after them, and you've got to have a judge that's going to put them in jail. And once the word spreads that if you come into the capital city and you do crime, you're going to go to jail, it will stop all that mess from going on. And so that's what, that's all 1020 was designed to do. And um, the allegations of racism are just, uh, they're just false. It's just that they don't really have anything else to argue, so they throw that up there. And it's just not right. Going back to abortion, I wanted to get your thoughts on what, I want to get your experience on how how did Mississippi get to the point of getting before the Supreme Court? I know uh, the 15-week bill was uh, the 15-week law was not necessarily something that Mississippi had not tried before. What did it take to get it before the Supreme Court and get a ruling? Well, it it, it is a challenge, as you rightly point out. It uh, can sometimes. Grow, we, we grow weary of fighting fights that seem to be going nowhere, and that's kind of what happened here. When we took over, when Republicans took over in 2012, we immediately set out on a pro-life agenda. I think I counted three or four bills that we passed prior to this one that made various statements on the pro-life cause. In every one of those instances, they were immediately challenged, injunctions were entered, the bills were stopped, and it can grow, you can grow weary of, of continuing to pass bills that seem to go nowhere. In 2018, the 15-week 
bill, which is another one that we passed, was brought up. And in 2018, the Supreme Court of the United States did not appear to be inclined to overturn Roe versus Wade. It was still stacked with um, justices who were not inclined to do that. And so many of my members were like, uh, this is, we're just beating our heads against the wall here. And, and just as a side note, every time one of those bills hits the House floor, it becomes a very controversial issue, intense debate, heated debate. And those who don't want to see the bill pass uh, argue for two and three hours. And, and you spend a lot of political capital fighting a fight that appears to go nowhere. So in 2018, when House Bill 1510 came up, I remember in our caucus meeting having this discussion, and many members said, you know, we have, we've made, we've already passed these four or five bills that I just mentioned. They go nowhere. The Supreme Court's not going to overturn it. We've made statements that we're pro-life. Why do we need to pass another one? And we had to talk through that, a little bit of fatigue, really. And many of them said, you know, we're, we're going to have a three-hour debate. We're going to spend a lot of capital on the floor, and it's going to go nowhere. But we made a decision. I made the statement we should never grow weary of doing good. Let's, let's keep fighting the fight. So we did. And little did we know that four years later the Supreme Court composition would change. In 2018, they did not appear to be inclined to overturn Roe versus Wade. But in 2022, the composition had changed. The bill that we passed worked its way through the court system uh, from the District Court of Mississippi to the Fifth Circuit, and the Supreme Court took it on. And little did we know that that particular bill was going to be the one that would overturn Roe versus Wade. So that's kind of how it all came about, and um, I think the Lord did all that. The Lord made all that happen, and we're very grateful that it did. That was House Speaker Philip Gunn with our Kobe Vance. Coming up, public universities continue a trend of raising tuition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11, an MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Five of Mississippi's eight public universities are increasing tuition. In-state students will see an increase on average of $169 per year this fall. Some of the universities have been steadily increasing tuition since before the pandemic. Stephen Holly is the vice chancellor for administration and finance at the University of Mississippi. He's implementing a 2% tuition hike. Holly breaks down the factors with our Lacey Alexander. The burden of expenses that are flowing through our organization are just like what you would experience at home. Uh, food, the cost of your utilities, the cost of living life has just been more expensive due to inflation in the last year or so, and organizations are just the same as homes. Gotcha. And can you educate our listeners on where those tuition dollars typically go in an organization? Sure. Those tuition dollars will go first and foremost towards academic enterprise, which we've seen enrollment growth the last couple of years. So when you have more students 
there's a certain burden of expense that goes up with that. And then secondarily, we go to student services, everything from counseling, uh, advising, the recruiting function. Uh, you know, we have so many different initiatives that, that broadly for all students and then also for different groups, uh, that kind of support, helping those kids transition to college is our student services. And then thirdly, after academic and, and student support services, you would have the administration that supports all those functions, like my role. And when we see a tuition increase at an institution like University of Mississippi, what other changes do we typically see in correlation of that? Do we see some other kind of prices go up? Do we see scholarship dollars expanded? What comes with the territory of a tuition increase? Sure. You'll see a couple of things. One, you'll see additions to those services that I listed for you, like academic and support services, will add more staff. So for us, um, you know, we've got way more. So we had 44, 80 freshmen last year, so most of all time. This coming fall, uh, way too early to publish a number, but expect another increase. In fact, almost all uh, Southeastern Conference schools are going up by significant percentages. So when you have more students to teach, you, you need more teachers. So there is some investment in that. Uh, another, there is an investment in our infrastructure. So we have to make sure that rooms are ready to receive the students to teach in. We're close to finishing out our new STEM building, the Duff Center. Those are the types of things that, because of the connection to our academic program, we want to make sure the spaces are what they need to be. And uh, so staffing, uh, you know, to meet the direct student need, facilities to do it well in. To your question about scholarships, whenever we raise tuition, there is a comparable raise in the scholarship dollars to go with that tuition increase. So you'll see it in scholarship, you'll see it in staffing, you'll see it in facilities, you'll see it in all those areas. And of course, then there are some cost increases that we're just trying to uh, make sure that we keep up with. So for instance, you haven't asked about our food service. In our food service area, you've seen uh, double-digit increases in the cost of milk and bread. Well, those costs roll through our food service, and so to some degree we have to make sure that we're good stewards of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly. All right. Stephen Holly is Vice Chancellor for Administration and Finance at the University of Mississippi. The increases might require some students to utilize more financial aid when planning for higher ed. Kirsten DeFore is the Director of External Training and Partnerships with Get to College, a program of the Woodward Hines Foundation. So more Mississippians are going to feel these um, tuition increases when they're planning their post-secondary options. This is going to require students to think more in advance planning for those students when now looking at those um, with the tuition. A lot of students are already considering a lot of different factors when selecting the best option. Students will need to maximize all of the different funding sources that are available to them. Um, and that's going to be even more important. It is already important and now it just means that even more so that and students are going to need to make sure that they're completing the FAFSA to maximize the federal aid that they may be eligible for, you know, completing the Mississippi aid application for Mississippi aid earlier, and making sure that they're not missing any deadlines for the institutional aid, and then using and utilizing tools for free that are out there, such as um, finding those private scholarships like the 
scholarship search tool that's on the Get to College's website. And it's really going to um, require the student to maximize the rating of all of those kind of four major buckets of sources of financial aid um, to make sure that they can um, have the maximum amount of aid available to afford what their next option is for them. The State College Board also cited inflation and rising insurance costs as some of the reasons for the tuition increases. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.